everybody, Jonathan Dorr with you once again. Welcome back, friends, to the Supply Side Podcast. So good to have the pleasure of your company. Welcome aboard to another fantastic exploration of all things Supply Side Macro. In this episode, we're going to do some regulatory stuff. We're going to look at the impact of regulation. We're going to look at the impact of environmental regulation with an absolutely fantastic guest. I'm really pleased to be welcoming to the show... Dr. Alan Moran, who what he does not know about regulatory issues probably has not been written. He's had an extensive career. You know what makes him really interesting is that he has had enormous exposure to working within government and now spends a lot of his time looking at the impact of government on the wider market and the wider society. So I won't do a full introduction here because we're going to do that live in the show. You're going to hear about his background and you're going to hear the great wisdom that he has to share with us. It's uh, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? This uh, The way that uh, government intervention in markets can have all sorts of unseen effects. Sitting here on my desk in the studio is... Thomas Sowell's famous basic economics, and he always talks about trade-offs. But when government gets involved, there are all sorts of trade-offs that take place, and sometimes things that are they come with good intent, they can end up having all sorts of impacts down the line. So that's enough from me. Let's get into this episode with Dr. Alan Moran. Please make sure you've subscribed, and if you like what you hear today, we'd love it if you could share it with other like-minded people. So let's do this. Welcome aboard again to the Supply Side Podcast. Welcome to our interview with Dr. Alan Moran. Dr. Alan Moran, thank you so much for joining us on the Supply Side Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome, Jonathan. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, there's a couple of key articles that you've written recently that I think people are going to be very interested to hear your perspective on. And as I've gone through some of your background, I think you've got, you're writing so much, you're writing well, and there's so much that I think you've got to share with us. So I'm just going to spin people quickly through a little walk down memory lane. We're going to look back at some of your journey in, in government policy, in the public sector, in, in areas of regulation, environment. So educated in the United Kingdom and uh, a PhD from the University of Liverpool in transport economics and uh, also degrees from uh, Salford, University of Salford and the London School of Economics. And as I often say to my kids, whoever dies with the most degrees wins. So you've, uh, you've done well there. And your professional life's included 18 years as the director of the deregulation unit at the Institute of Public Affairs. You've been a senior official at the Productivity Commission and then the director of the Commonwealth Office of Regulation Review. And when I found that out, I thought we definitely need some review of regulation. So uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing you talk about that. You've published widely. You're writing uh, continually. Your latest book is called Climate Change Trump and policy, it's, uh, sorry, uh, climate change treaties and policies in the Trump era. So here's my first question. When I was in high school, I wanted to f- either fly F-18 fighter jets or be a spy. What led you into this journey of, of this amazing professional journey? What, were you always interested in some of these global economic trends? Tell us about your journey. It's not all that spectacular. I worked in the energy area very soon after I get my PhD in the UK. I actually worked for something called the Gas Council, which is an umbrella organisation involved in gas. And I worked in the motor industry in the UK as well. I came out here because I saw a... a what looked like at the time quite an attractive job, which is the senior economist in the Department of Trade. And I progressed through the through the bureaucracy in various ways for about uh, 13 or 14 years before realizing that uh, a bullet was heading to me as, as Labour was in power and uh, they were gradually isolating me from various policy areas. And I joined a, a think tank, what one first called the Tasman Institute. I worked a little while again later in the Victorian government when there were privatization, the energy assets was taking place. And then, as you say, I worked in think tanks in the Institute of Public Affairs and now my own organization, Regulation Economics. And yeah. I drifted into the area of, of regulatory issues and, and how governments were stymieing the efficiency of the private sector and uh, continuing to do. Because it's an interesting journey because to have spent, uh, you, you've seen both sides here. You've had a long journey in the public sector and that's informed a lot of the work you're doing now. Do you, 
would you describe yourself as having a particular, being a member of a particular economic school? I guess the, the school would be called supply side, if, if anything. And essentially, it's, a, it's an emphasis on the ability to produce things for the economy enables us to have high living standards. And that's often forgotten the dominant paradigm in economics is, is Keynesian or even monetarist, whatever. And, the, and it basically having people as fixers, having people trying to manipulate the economy into doing better than it is. And in doing so, they generally make it far worse than it is. And th there's a kind of a, a, an obliviousness to the importance of uh, reinforcing our ability to produce things cheaply, which means more capital investment, means more R&D and better training of labor force, etc. There's a, a seeming inability to understand that this is the cause of growth. And essentially what treasury departments do is, uh, is stimulate the economy. And it's, that's music to the ears of, po of politicians, of course, with additional expenditure. And in doing so, they undermine the uh, productive capabilities of the economy. And we, we're seeing that very much at the present time. Yeah, we had a great conversation last week with Nathan Lewis, who's been on the show a couple of times, who writes brilliantly on classical gold standards. And in his latest analysis, he has a, he writes, he's quite funny, and he has this line where he says, he's talking about MMT, and he said that MMT is the process by which governments spend huge amounts of money, which is enormously popular until it isn't. I like that line because there's, there's definitely a, a teleology, there's a trajectory, I think, that we're on. And... Let's get into that because there's two articles of yours that I want to talk about. The first one you wrote back in January 2020. And <clears throat> when I went back through it today, it's that weird sense of this was just before COVID really kicked off. And I looked at the date and I thought, gosh, if I knew what markets were going to do two months after you wrote this, I'd, it'd be a different life. But you wrote a great article called Wealth Will Weaken Us If We Ever Yield to Populism. And to give people some background, you were writing here about uh, Stanford's Mont Pelerin Society, which was obviously set up post-World War II as a kind of intellectual salon contra Marxist you know, dialectic and scientific materialism. But you write in this article that what you're observing is a shift in confidence from that broad capitalist model, the ability of capitalism to lift people out of poverty. And you're sensing a loss of confidence in that, which is obviously being played out by so much of what we're seeing. Can you take us through some of that? Just walk us through what compelled you to write that, what what you're thinking in that area? Well, I just, it, it, it's, we've seen, we saw the period of Microeconomic reform, we called it in Australia in the late 80s and the 90s, when we saw privatizations in place, we saw competition policy. And this basically brought about a, a much deeper productivity gain in the economy as a whole. And we're still basking in, in, in living standards as a result of that. But there was a lot of confidence, I think, in, in, as, a, as on the part of the people as a whole. Maybe the politicians didn't explain what was going on very well. But one way or another, there was this feeling that we ought to actually intervene in capitalism more because the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. The same sort of, of dialogue that came out of Marxism. Not exactly true, but nonetheless, th there was this feeling that there was a lot of unfairness around and that we ought to actually intervene to ensure that uh, we get a fairer split up. And this... this uh, uh, percolated, of course, into the political class itself, because after all, they just reflect what people are saying to, to a very de great degree. And, and it's resulted in as, as clogging up the works of capitalism, because it's all very well to say we ought to uh, get a better, a better division of the spoils is, is being achieved. But every time you do, that has some disincentive effects on the people who are creating the wealth. And and the more you do it, of course, the more that disincentive effect is in place. Yeah, and, and this was becoming apparent in, indeed in that Stanford conference in the US, where there was a feeling that uh, you know there, there was a great deal more intervention coming through. And I was writing basically to say that this is a great pity, and uh, unless we do something about it, we will see much more sluggish economies. And of course, since then, we've seen far greater interventions in the economy, partly through COVID, but COVID has just been an excuse of massive interventions. And indeed, we, we now face quite serious, or much more serious reper repercussions as a result of the ensuing debt and, and the debilitation of the incentive to invest in, in productive matters. What do you think is the ultimate 
intellectual epistemological engine behind this kind of shift like people often will talk about Foucault this reducing everything to the dialectic of power and that some of the stuff in that first article you're talking about the aggregate share of income for the rich has grown rapidly middle class in heavy decline and a port the poor's had a marginal decline and you write here that really what this is going to drive is increasing levels of social division even violence can you what do you think's ultimately at the heart of it what what do you think is driving this shift from the belief that capitalism was transformative it was going to keep and it did lift people out of poverty what if you had to pick one or two key drivers what would you pick i i i don't know that there are key drivers i think there is something essentially capitalism does reward the the greatest producers by the greatest amount. If, 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 I liken it a bit to a lot of other things, for example, pop music. The, the difference between the Rolling Stones and some other gra- group who was who playing is not great. However, the Rolling Stones earn a hundred times as much as, as this other group. And you can see that in terms of the earners in the IT industry as well. There is a kind of, that those people who are earning the most, who, who are producing the most, tend to earn the most as well. And this actually does create an envy on the part of of a lot of people even though other people as we've seen our society are basically enjoying massive increases in standard of living themselves they're not as high as those at the top and there is an envy there as a result and there is a feeling that if only we could get some more of that income from the top to the bottom or the middle we'll all be better off and there is the, and and the, there's this always this this thinking that essentially that the wealth will be created anyway that we don't understand that the wealth is created because people have actually gone out there, seized opportunities, invented things, and then then sold them to the rest of us. And in doing so, they, they earn high incomes, but there is then a trickle down. And trickle down has become a, a, a sense of an odious concept. Yeah, it's pe- almost pejorative, yeah. Exactly. And, and yet that is the way... That is the way we enriched ourselves in the first place, and that is the way we continue to enrich ourselves by ensuring that, you know, that there is sufficient incentive for people to go out there, invent new new things, and uh, risk their own savings, be parsimonious in terms of their consumption, and, and save more themselves, and, and thereby generate higher incomes for themselves and for all of those around them. I'd be interested in your take on, your take on something I read a couple of years back, which was that when you look at the great at the Gilded Age, and I read a, a fantastic biography on Rockefeller a couple of years back. When you look at that at the Rockefellers and John Paul Getty and all those guys, that huge growth in wealth, the argument was that it also created a lot of employment. So as railroads rolled out, there was a lot more employment, and obviously there was an investment in infrastructure that the railroads created. One argument I came across was that the modern tech giants are simply not employing the numbers of people and also the cash that they're making is tending to sit in war chests. It's tending to sit on balance sheets and not end up. Is, have you got any thoughts on that? Is that a significant difference compared to the kind of explosive growth of the Gilded Age is it, is, or, or is it similar? I'd say it's more similar than you'd think. Um, of course, the Gilded Age, you saw oil oil fields and you saw railways and you saw things you could touch and things which is less so in the in the, in the modern IT age but the IT area uh, does employ lots and lots of people I don't know, 10% of, of employment in one way or another it employs lots of people and the fact is that if, if it creates wealth that wealth will be spent if it sits on balance sheets you can't really hide wealth under your bed if it sits on balance sheets in a bank somewhere and the bank then has got money and it's lending the money out to other people the answer is that there's been an enormous increase in gdp as a result of, of the people of, of the uh, apples and the, yeah. uh, the facebook of this world enormous increase in wealth and that it it, it has made ma- mega bucks for the people involved but it's trickled down to the rest of us as well yeah. Yeah. I said to Nathan last week on the show, there's a brilliant recent discussion between Jordan Peterson and a guy that runs, a, I think it's humanprogress.org, and they're, they're tracking 
things like over the last 50 years, the number of people who've moved out of absolute poverty, the you know changes in infant mortality, the changes for women. There's actually about 10 or 20 major indicators that things are actually surprisingly good. So I get confused every day when I look at global macro, I go, is the world coming to an end? Is it better? Sometimes it's hard to know. A couple of other things from this first article, you mentioned here that obviously what we're seeing is a huge increase in government size and this big increase, and you write about this a fair bit in terms of environmental regulation. For American listeners, we have a column on here and you mentioned this Adani that took nine years to be approved. Tell us a little bit about that, the shift from the idea that it was the capitalism was about growth and development, and you are identifying a big shift now, aren't you? You're seeing increasing government, increasing regulation. Yeah, there's been possibly partly understandable anyway that a shift away from as reveling in in the increase in taming nature, if you like, taming nature and making nature productive to us, to actually saying, well, we've got to do the opposite. We've got to turn it back. I mean that yeah we. We can see that with the environmental impact statements being required, the Adani case, which was had a trivial, really a trivial, trivial effect on on the environment, but which which faced massive amounts of protests and great and a great deal of environmental legislative barriers as well. All of which is costing us a lot of money. But if you think in terms of, I I think in terms of say basic projects which were built 30 years ago or something by Western Mining. They discovered a nickel deposit. They thought, oh, that's pretty good. Within two years, it was up and running. Now, yeah. that the contrast now with Adani and anything else is quite stark. And in fact, we even the, the latest budget, I mean, we've, we've essentially the, the uh, National Party are saying, what a great idea. We, what we'll do, we'll have the subsidies to farmers essentially to stop farming. And it's... <laughs> A little proud who's the minister there for farmers essentially is saying we'll take we, he doesn't quite say it like this but what he means is we'll take 16 percent out of the farming acreage that we have in australia and we'll have that as carbon capture and storage with a few incentives etc this is basically we're derating our economy and, and we've seen that elsewhere we've seen it in terms of the murray river that the irrigation there essentially this is a river it's a working river it's, it's a great, it's a fine river. It can never be the same as it was as it was uh, 200 years ago, uh, but it's fine. The river the river is working well. But we have groups of activists will come in and say, no, the the river gums need a drink, or this needs a drink, or whatever. We've got to take money from these irrigators and let it go into the environment. So we've taken sort of 20 percent of the water from the irrigators, which which basically means we've got considerably less productivity in that area, which is a very significant area, the Murray-Darling, it's about 30 or 35 or 40% of our agricultural production is in that area, most of it irrigated. We've de- we're derating the economy in response to activist environmental claims that we're all going to the dogs, whereas in fact, in terms of the what used to be the uh, criteria for environment, clean air, clean water, clean, etc., is massively improved than, than what it was. I and mean, the only thing that you can point to conceivably where it's not is, is the increase in carbon dioxide emissions, which is driving this massive debate on energy uh, and, and other things globally. You don't strike me as someone given to hyperbole. So what do you make of, is it a cultural death wish? Like it's like here we have all this, productive land and as as i think i'm correct in saying the most advanced economies tend to have the best environments because we deploy the best technologies for for looking after the environment is it a cultural death wish what do you think's behind it i don't think it's a cultural death wish but uh, there is a self-harm as a result of focusing on particular facets which you think have not been looked after enough if people people talk about deforestation quite frankly we've got we have as much forest in Australia now as we did in the year 1900, because we cut cut a lot of the forest down in the early, and then gradually it's been grown again, and the land which has been submarginal has grown trees on it. Some, but only a little bit, is because of set-asides, but from the national parks. If you look at just about any different, any environmental measure, and I think this is was behind your question there, it's gotten better and it gets better all the time under capitalism. And that's what capitalism does. It makes us richer and allows us then to select things to be preserved that, that otherwise wouldn't be preserved. And quite frankly, it it's moved us way beyond 
uh, what is reasonable in, in terms of that at the present stage in Australia and another Western, many other Western countries. Yeah, referencing back to that Jordan Peterson interview on the indicators of things improving in the world, the data they were quoting um, from the UN, which doesn't tend to see the light of day, this piece of data, but that the planet can reasonably sustain somewhere north of eight to nine billion. And then they're suggesting there'll be a, a gradual population decline. So all those Malthusian predictions of mass starvation haven't, don't seem to have eventuated at this point. And indeed, no matter what we do in the economy, we do an awful lot of things. For example, we're forcing synthetic gasoline through, through essentially through taking out produce from corn, etc. And no matter what we do, the crop yields increase year by year. We, we're getting better at it year by year. There's the, the whole idea of famine, which was besetting humans all over the world every so often, couple of centuries ago is just absurd now there couldn't be any famine the only famine is created by warfare or whatever and, and despoilation politics there's no famine possible anywhere in the world at this juncture unless we suddenly go backwards and and, and prevent uh, agricultural production yeah so true i remember reading a book on the currency crisis in zimbabwe and and you get starvation in places like that when you get complete currency collapse and malad maladministration it's interesting you say with the famines i'm sh showing my age a little but growing up as a kid you can i can remember seeing the the footage of famines in ethiopia and again this what i was listening to last week they're just saying you, you just don't see them like that anymore there are a, a handful of places in the world North Korea, for example, where it can it still happens. But so I wanted to ask you: it's very easy to, to have a broad brush and say we need massive deregulation and just open slather. But I, my sense with you is that with all your background in the regulatory sphere, there obviously is a place for regulation. Yeah, where do you see regulation being useful and effective? Well, I think there's some elements. Certainly, when when there's what economists call externalities or, or side effects of things. Clean air, for example, the measures to prevent pollution of, of sulfur and, and other things and, and lead, etc., are all pretty good. These things people make profit off, but, the, but they then have adverse implications on others. The regulations in those kinds of areas are, I think, quite beneficial. There is a suggestion, there is a case for regulation where there's monopoly as well. That's less of a convincing case to me because whenever a monopoly exists, the monopolies, of course, price gouges is quite normal and in that that also then attracts things which break the monopoly and, and you mentioned earlier that the Rockefellers etc essentially Rockefeller he, I don't think he was price gouging but he was certainly earning a lot of money and, and it did create an awful lot of, of newcomers into the market and by the time that Rockefeller Standard Oil was broken up it was far from a monopoly it probably only had about 30 or 40 percent of the market so others at Shell etc Shell and BP and and Amoco etc had come in but Texas had come in basically to undermine the monopoly and we found that also with some of the early data was on railroads okay a railroad is a, is a monopoly and suddenly you found other railroads being built when if the, the monopoly if the railroad was acting as a price gouger it did attract opposition and uh, we found that generally in, in areas of economy i can't really see much of a case for us intervening the areas where we might intervene are in in areas of environment maybe issues of public safety and food and things like that there is a case for doing for, for putting it in there because the, the argument is that if we didn't have that of course firms make their reputation by not poisoning poisoning us with the food and therefore they take considerable steps but it's arguable that they wouldn't take as much without uh, there was some sort of, of requirements on the part of governments to to investigate things before they're done yeah, it's a pretty effective marketing tool to to not poison your customers. I think it keeps them coming back. It's fascinating to listen to you. I you, you said a moment ago that outside of these few key areas, you don't see a huge need for intervention. And listening to that, we're in this incredibly interventionist moment. I've often quoted a, a line from Murray Rothbard's book, The Case Against the Fed, where he argues that there's only three three places a government should be involved, only three, and that was the the guarantee of private contracts, so enforcement of contracts, the national defence and the protection of physical and personal property. I was, it was quite striking because we've just, 
because yeah, the amount of intervention and, and regulation is quite extraordinary. After those all those, bar, sorry, yeah, those, rough, those rough bar tenants are the key tenants. Most people wouldn't regard that as regulation, although of course it is regulation because it's state control. But the regulation is uh, it, it comes over and above those basic frameworks which hold society together. Yeah, it's. I've still got three young children, and I find myself so constantly saying things like. No, we're not allowed to do that. No, we're not allowed to do that. No, we can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. And that's just fascinating. It's, yeah. Yeah, look, the other thing I want to talk about is this second article, which you wrote, which is where I first reached out to you. You wrote an article earlier in the week called Enjoy the Sugar Hit as we flirt with economic ruin. And I'll just give you an interest of the opening line you wrote here was very good. You said, economic growth requires political stability and secure property rights. Its drivers include low taxation, an educated, skilled workforce, and technological innovation. But the overwhelming influence is investment in business activities, roads, and other infrastructure. So you make a point that historically in Australia, for example, at our best, 20 to 25% of GDP has gone into business investment. We're now down around 10. Surrounding Asian nations are over 20 Take us through your thesis in that article. What are you trying to tell people on this side of, on this issue of investment in business and business investment from government? Yeah, I think the, the thing that irked me and prompted me to write the article was the budget and looking at it where the government was printing itself saying that <clears throat> we've basically done extremely well in COVID, our society, our economy is roaring ahead and we're clever for doing it. The, the thing that, that, that struck me is what is... Basically, the reason why we're recovering from COVID is because the government has taken the brakes off. COVID wasn't like a war where we've actually destroyed capital investment, we've destroyed an awful lot of things, and we're all going to be poorer as a result. Essentially, it just forced many of us to take a year off. The basic structure of the economy was the same. So as soon as the brakes were taken off by the government, then we recovered. And who who could have... Anticipated anything other than that, we're bound to recover. Of course, that means that didn't mean a lot of people made made financial losses, and and that was terrible for them. But essentially, the structure of the economy remained the same. But what didn't remain the same, and is the government's uh, intervention, the government's massive increase in spending. This <clears throat> combined with other policies that they they put in place in in terms of energy and in terms of we talked about land before elsewhere has actually made uh, been a great distimulus to investment. And we've seen investment now probably pretty much at the lowest level it's been certainly for 50 years as a share of GDP. And one of the things that fails to be recognized by treasury departments who have the economic models and they basically say, oh, okay, if you increase government spending or investment spending or consumer spending, it all increases GDP, which of course doesn't. You've actually get to get, got to get back to, and this came, comes back to my philosophy, in, in economics, the supply side. Uh, you can always stimulate the economy, and that will mean more income, but it may not mean, but it's unlikely more more real income, it's just inflation. And if we've stimulated the economy now with 7% deficits, with a, quite a, a very big increase in the money supply over recent years through the through government borrowing and, and just get through jet, government injection of money into the banking system. But this is not supporting or has not been supported by increased investments. And this means, in the end, we must have face lower standard of living, certainly lower standard of living than we would have had if we, once we were investing that much money. Australia's had, as a result of taxation policies and various other things, quite a, a low savings rate uh, compared to other countries. And we've always imported capital investment on quite a considerable scale, about 10% of, of savings, which probably means about 20% of business savings or business investment comes from overseas, which is, is quite unhealthy for an economy which is quite rich. We're importing savings from India and from China, economies which are, which face a lot of poverty still, but certainly not as rich as we are. So basically, we have been importing a lot of capital to, to supplement our savings. And now we're, we're not even investing. We're not investing anything like as much as we, as we should. And really, it comes back to the, uh, the government's seizing a lot of income for its own spending and therefore not investing. When government does invest, it, it, te it tends to invest in 
in low returning. It, it tends to be involved in political type investments rather than, than maximizing profit, which is the key to, to efficient investment. I, I listen to you and I keep thinking of George Gilder's his book, Knowledge and Power, the sort of information theory of capitalism that that what capitalism does at its best is coordinate these vast amounts of interactions and, and human motivations and it's the invisible hand perhaps, but it's when you read it and you think about it, it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary thing. And this idea that government can figure all that out more effectively than people left to work that out. I often say on the show that the the US Federal Reserve system has over just short of 1,500 PhDs on staff across the different reserves. And you look at the boom bust, boom bust, the deficits, and you're going, they're not getting a lot of value out of some of the PhDs at the moment. So it's interesting to see what happens when this uh, in this moment we're in historically. You also say in the article, it really struck me that 15 years ago, Australia was debt-free. And now I think we're running just north of 40%, which Comparatively, I think the US is pushing 130% of debt to GDP now. The other thing you mentioned is that the, our government's getting in the business of picking winners in terms of some of those rebates for, I think you mentioned biotech, medical. Is that a similar thing that the, the government is just, you know, I think you say that they're not as sophisticated as merchant bankers at picking winners. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, I'm, it may well be, biotech is a great area for growth and probably is a, a good area for growth. But I find it somewhat offensive when governments are saying, okay, we're going to give these people a stimulus because we think they they are the areas uh, which are going to be gung-ho and going to lead, lead us out of poverty in the years to come. We've seen governments in Australia do this for almost forever. And it was going to be textiles and motor vehicles. And then, you know, we had this great idea that we were building all these wind farms. So we'd, we'd invest in we'd blade factories, windmill blade factories, of course, went probably went bust as soon as the, the money was laid out. It's much better, I think, if the government doesn't do any of this thing, doesn't try to to be selective in terms of forming investment. It doesn't know things that over and above what the entrepreneurs know. The public servants themselves, as you, you quoted, that they're, they're not Macquarie Bank bankers. They're, they're basically just guys like me, maybe you, who, who know a little bit but haven't got their own money on the line. And mm-hmm. so they, they tend to pick the winners, but the, the winners are, more often than not tend, tend to be losers. Tell us where you think MMT's going. MMT, which Jim Rogers says is, he says it stands for more money today. I've been the last week going deeper into MMT and just trying to understand the intellectual underpinnings of it, but I, I still can't get past the conversations I have with my own children that you can't magically create base money without product without a productive without it coming from production so where do you think it's taking us it's taking us a, a long way at the moment in terms of the way government policy is moving even though most governments most officials and certainly most politicians would tend to say to, to, that, that it can't work they are trying to make it work i mean they're, they're sort of leveraging their own political futures off it and the people who are favoring mrt say what's your problem basically we're doing pretty well we've increased this we're spending money and we don't have that inflation which you forecast yeah and that and that that appears to be the case that there's certainly indications that the inflation may take off over recent weeks. The U.S. inflation rate went up 4.2% in the yeah. last month. And there are various people who are now saying there is inflation. Others are saying the inflation is there, really, but you can't see it because it's in bricks and mortar and houses and various things like that. You've got to, you'd have to say in the end, even though the relationship of money supply and real wealth and inflation is very difficult to detect, very difficult to scientifically determine uh, the cause and effect. It's got to be that if you actually dump a lot more money on the economy without producing the goods, there's got to be inflation in the end. I mean, it's being prevented or being stopped at the moment because people are holding a lot of money in bank balances, more money than they used to to hold. You can't say that's going to happen forever. But when it does take off, it may take off slowly and and, and gradually governments will pin it it back and prevent it happening. But it may take off very rapidly, as as it has in various countries in the past. Yeah, you finished that article where you're, you're saying that the outcome of all of what we're talking about, at least for this country and probably for a few developed economies, is 
you say either to the slow Latin American decline or an abrupt crash. What's your gut feeling on where things are heading as you look into the next decade? I would say the former, the low, there is likely to be a low decline. If, if there is a crash, that has some benefits. It certainly wipes a lot of people out, very painful. But a crash does suddenly have this major understanding that we can't continue like that. We've got to go into austerity. We've got to do this and, and wind back the payment systems and things and, and, and stop stop impeding people's decision-making in terms of efficiency. But that crash that often leads to, to poor policies, as it did in the United States, for example, in the 1930s and takes a long time to get over. But the worst thing is the slow decline, the, the boiling frog sort of thing <laughs> and the Argentinian conundrum which started over 100 years ago when Argentina had about you know, a similar per capita income to Australia and the United States and is, you know, calls itself, has, has done for many years now, a third world country. So, you know, that that is the tragedy that, that may well unfold, that we'd continue along the lines we've been continuing. And because Australia is has got some phenomenal natural wealth, it's unlikely to go the sort of Bangladesh or Ethiopian route. But nonetheless, it's going to be a lot poorer than, than it would be. Yeah, listening to you, it just sounds a lack of, of stewardship in a way. I quoted last week Chris DeMuth from the Hudson Institute in the US. I read a, pa- a paper of his and he, he said that for the 181 years in the US, 181 years right up till the closing of the gold window in 71, the US essentially ran balanced budgets, 181 years. And his theory was that basically there was a kind of moral imperative. There was a sense of George Washington said that it it was anathema for any generation to create debt that it couldn't pay off in its own lifetime. Mm. And just to see where we're at now with like the US deficit and the forward obligations, it's like a big historical shift, right? It is. And the the people would take the contrary and say, look, people are going to be much richer in the future than we are. Why shouldn't they pay pay more if you could if you can get away with it then then that that's that makes a bit of sense but as you say no economists really thought in terms of deficit financing until Keynes the governments were doing a bit of it now and again before Keynes in 1936 the general his general theory now any economist who's, who doesn't agree with it couldn't get a job in Treasury. There isn't. We have we have the Treasury. We don't, we don't know that we've got fifteen hundred PhDs in the Australian mm-hmm. Treasury, but, but but we've got a lot there on the, the Reserve Bank, and they all think that it's, pretty, it's great. We we can do this, and maybe we're just going a little bit too far now. The Treasury Secretary said yesterday, perhaps we've got to wind back at some stage in the future, uh, but he's been encouraging the government to spend ever since he was appointed. Yeah, it sounds like a, a little bit of pregnancy. Maybe we've gone too far. It's I think once the hand has been put to the plough, it's funny, you know, living here in Canberra, I, I'm a very committed cyclist and I ride a huge amount. Every Thursday morning, one of my rides finishes literally out the front of the Treasury building. And I always stop there and I put my headphones on and put some stuff on for the ride home. And it's funny sitting there and I was saying this to one of my kids you know, there's essentially a room in there where, with a computer screen, where somebody is typing in zero, 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 and, and hitting enter, and it's like magical unicorn money just came into the world. And I'm like, when you explain it to a five-year-old, and they go, "But you can't do that." I'm going, "Yeah, I know." So I wanted to ask you a couple of final things. I know you've got a TV interview to get to, and I want to ask you a couple of favorite questions of mine. Can you ever see the re-establishment of a gold standard? And do you think it'd be a good thing? Yeah, I think it would be a good thing. I think it certainly would be a good thing. Can we be re-established? Maybe Bitcoin will be, uh, you know, the the gold standard in the future. Maybe that's this. It's it's going to have teething troubles. It's going to go up and down. I think there will be. Essentially, although governments will always steal your money, uh, and they can't do it so much when, you, when there's a gold standard there, that that people will look for ways in which they can avoid having the government take their money, and maybe gold will be in there and, and other other assets like that to to do it. So we'll get something like that forced, perhaps forced on government, because people will leave the national currencies which are which are depreciating vis-a-vis gold or bitcoin or whatever else is in, invented so i i know that your focus isn't 
necessarily on cryptos, but I uh, just finished a bunch of study at Oxford in their crypto economics program. And my my conviction is that there is no way in, in there is no way in hell that central banks and sovereign governments are going to let private cryptocurrencies win. I, I just think central bank digital currencies, if they don't if they don't win, then the entire order of nation states and seniorage and all that stuff collapses. So do you have any thoughts on that? I know that crypto is not a big necessary focus for you, but I can't see how governments don't use central bank digital currencies just to wipe out private cryptocurrencies. Well, yeah, but then people would have to have confidence in the central bank's digital currencies. I have any confidence that we all have superannuation I know the government's going to steal the superannuation eventually, and we, it already yeah. has it. So it's going to it's going to it, it, it steal that, no matter what sort of uh, assurances it gave in the first instance. And and I, I guess that if they if the central banks bring in their own cryptocurrencies, then they will be successful if people think they are bona fide and they will keep to them. Otherwise, people will seek to buy gold or buy. Uh, Bitcoin or private sector things. And it's difficult to see how the government stops that happening. Governments globally would have to come to some sort of agreements and policing mechanism in ways that are difficult to, to envisage. Makes me think of that line, trust us, we're from the government, we're here to help. You can trust us with our new cryptocurrency. This time we'll behave. Last couple of things, we don't give investment advice on the podcast, but can you suggest in terms of hedging or just the, the global macro outlook over the next decade, what sorts of things would you suggest people should be thinking about in terms of protecting wealth? I, I, I guess the traditional answer is bricks and mortar and houses and all that sort of stuff. There, there is a problem in Australia in that respect because houses are, are inflated in value as a result of regulation. I've, d- I've done a lot of work in, in the course of my career on housing uh, policies and essentially, uh, we, we are very efficient producers of housing in Australia. We have a very dispersed system, non-union, and all that sort of stuff. But what we do is ration land, or ration land uses. If somebody on the outskirts of the New South Wales border beyond Canberra has got a farm, it might be worth, I don't know, $2,000 a hectare. If suddenly that farm is rezoned for housing, it's worth $200,000 per, per hectare or more, more maybe. So essentially, we've got very high housing prices in Australia simply because of regulation mm-hmm. through government preventing land subdivisions and therefore thereby creating a shortage. So that's an area where you could say well, that would be great and it may still be great, but it's not as good as it might have been given the government's uh, decisions over the years. But so I guess those sorts of areas you'd think in terms of the better areas to go, maybe areas in terms of IT, obviously there's going to be improvements somewhere like in the 1920s and 1930s where clearly automobiles were the thing to do. And if you got it right, you were dead, but a lot of automobile companies went bankrupt too. We'll see that in IT as well. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, building out a blockchain consultancy, not cryptocurrency but actually the, the blockchain stuff behind it in terms of helping businesses with use, use cases and we're still very early in that that tech phase of blockchain and decentralized ledgers because it's you try to explain it to people as this glazed look over their eyes like, nah, not getting it yet so i think we're a few years away from the mass adoption there all right last thing is when COVID hit and basically, we've seen this vast monetary and fiscal stimulus globally. I think there's now north of $30 trillion in excess global liquidity. If you had a magic wand, what would you have done differently? If you were, you know, the prime minister or had said to you, hey, Alan, we're going to give you the keys. We're going to just give us a policy response. What would you have done differently, even if it was painful? I think uh, the, the, there's a, the COVID response in Australia was a mixture of let's protect people who suddenly become vulnerable as a result of the policies we've put in place to protect others. That is, so we've got to have a sense of a dole being given to people. But then in addition to that, there was always the idea that we ought to stimulate the economy as well. And I wouldn't have done any of that. Certainly, there was a case for putting in some temporary respite funding for people, but the government went a lot further than that. And it it talked about we need to stimulate, we need to do things over and again, over and above that. And indeed, in in the US, the Democrats now are talking about we've got to 
replace it, but replace it with something better. So it's using the COVID as an excuse to totally dismantle the no what they c consider the noxious parts of, of the economy and replace them by others, which basically is the socialistic response. So I think that there was always a case that you have to do something about COVID if you are going to, unless you're going to let it run rampant, which probably would have never been possible. You have to do something to protect those who you've created uh, as casualties, but that's all you need to do. And you don't need to start to stimulating the economy because as we've seen, the economy can, has, will come racing back because you haven't destroyed anything. All you've done is put it on ice. So at the, at the root of all of that, is it simply a question of political economy? It's that politician, it's a there's an interplay here, isn't there? Because if you look at Jude Winiski's The Way the World Works, and you mentioned this at the start, that politicians are responding to what they are sensing people want, and that's a, quite a Winiskian idea. Do you think as a populace there is just this increasing expectation for government largesse? So there's an interpenetration here that the people expect government to provide more and more, and the government is happy to keep doing it because they're relatively, for most politicians, it's four to eight years and then you're doing something else. Is that the dynamic? I think it is. It's the same dynamic that's always been there. I mentioned on a couple of articles, the American revolutionaries, I mean, they, they understood this and they understood how democracy could kill the republic because basically people will vote themselves more money. And that's why the whole idea of the American constitution, which is the same as the Australian constitution, essentially was in place to prevent governments actually doing that sort of thing to, to give them much much less leeway than they would want to actually seize money from other people and give it to those who were going to vote for them and uh, that's why the american constitution served us so well for so long there are signs that the more than signs that we've been discussing that essentially is, is no longer serving that purpose that, that once the government decides that it no longer is going to balance the budget, there again we suddenly that we suddenly departed from those principles that 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 were there to allow democracy to work in a way which didn't destroy the very which has given them the prosperity. I can't remember whether it was Alexander Hamilton or Benjamin Franklin that said that if the people don't understand basically the value of their freedom, he said, then the fault is ours, and it's our job as politicians to remind them of the importance of their freedom and, and not to take it away. So it's, it was an interesting idea. And all of this, my, my second master's I did was in philosophical anthropology and this idea of ontology, that there are certain uh, inalienable, if you will, aspects of personhood that people need to work. There's an inherent dignity in work and production. That's what attracted me to supply side originally. I was like, we need to produce stuff. We, we need to work. And if you create a context, either through universal basic income or transfer payments where people are disincentivized, it's not just an economic question. It's a question around human dignity and human just how culture develops. So for me, I'm starting to see we're in a very pivotal moment about what we think it means to be a culture. Last question. Are, are you optimistic are you in the dismal science? Are you, uh, what are you, what are you, as you look ahead, what are you thinking? Well, I think that I'm optimistic in terms of we'll see, continue to see technology showing us improvements and living standards, et cetera. But I'm quite pessimistic in terms of the ability of governments to corral these animal spirits that we have as, as individuals and to actually ensure that we don't steal the money from those who are producing the, the wealth that we're all enjoying and we don't suppress those incentives that they have. I'm quite pessimistic that we will see a turnaround back to the level of a more rampant capitalism, if you like, than we've we've been seeing in recent years. Yeah, I think when you look at the 2008 bailout, I said to my kids the other day that it wasn't, it's not really capitalism. When the central bank prevents the actual, the, the natural functioning of, a, of an ecosystem and refuses to allow failure to happen, then you know we're, we're seeing something emerging that's quite different so we're gonna let you go because i know you've got to you've got to get uh, across town but i've i've absolutely enjoyed this we're going to send people across to your work at regulationeconomics.com. we're going to put those links in the show notes but i want to thank you for sharing your wisdom with us and i just want to encourage you to keep writing because i'll be looking out for those articles in the months ahead 
Thanks, Jonathan, and keep televising as well because it's very important that the message gets uh, out and about and uh, you're doing a great piece of work doing that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate you joining us. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Jonathan back with you once again. Just to wrap up, I really hope you got a great deal out of that interview with Dr. Alan Moran. He had to finish up quickly and get across town to do a uh, great interview which we watched on television last night. Uh, really appreciate the work he's doing. There's so much common sense trying to help people understand the impact of excess regulation on retarding and distorting what takes place in markets that we would all probably hope were a little bit more unregulated and free. So that's it for this episode. Please make sure you go and check out Dr. Alan Moran at regulationeconomics.com. You can reach out to him there. It's it's an amazing site. There's a huge amount of his writing on that site. So if you want to go deeper into his work, please do that. Uh, Last bit of housekeeping for me, please make sure you've subscribed to the podcast. That's a big help wherever you're listening. And as we're only really getting started, your help in sharing this with other people. If you're on social media, posting this on your Twitter feed is a big help letting people know that uh, supply side is not has not gone missing. That there is uh, so many amazing men and women around the world who still have a strong sense that when good men and women produce good goods and services bit of a tautology there then our economies have the best chance at thriving don't you feel we're in a very interesting moment of global history it really does feel like uh, the script that we were all reading off is being rewritten almost on a daily basis so stay tuned friends we'll keep trying to bring you guests to unravel what's happening Uh, on a personal level um, taking my recent study at oxford in blockchain and crypto economics into a service offering so if you are interested in finding more about how we can help you with blockchain business cases and simply understanding blockchain i think there's a big sense of people they hear about cryptos they know a little bit about cryptos but uh, really what's incredibly powerful is the technology behind it the blockchain technology which i've been beavering away at for the last couple of years stay tuned we'll keep you posted on where i'm heading with that but that's it for this week we have james mcintosh from the wall street journal on coming on tuesday and then hopefully we've got a very famous global investor guest coming on the next couple of weeks so really hoping we can make that happen so stay tuned make sure you've subscribed my name's jonathan doyle this has been the supply side podcast and we'll have another episode for you very soon